Hello and welcome to The Thriving Future with me, Hannah Temple. Now, when we talk about regenerative organisations, my sense is that a lot of that conversation tends to be focused on corporations and how they need to adapt and evolve to put the greater thriving of life at the centre of their activities and ways of being. Now, corporations have huge power in the world and they absolutely do need to go on this journey towards becoming more regenerative if we're going to have a more thriving future for us all. However, they are by no means the only type of organisation that needs to undergo this form of evolution and become more regenerative. All organisations in our society will need to evolve if we want a healthier, happier, more balanced and more thriving future. And some of the most powerful organisations in our society are our governments. In many ways, because of the powers they often have to set the rules of the game, to make decisions, the kind of size of budgets they tend to have access to, they're often the most powerful organisations. So exploring what it might look like for a government to be more regenerative and the kinds of steps that it can take to move forward on that journey feels especially important. In this episode, we're going to speak to someone who helped one particular national government, the Welsh government here in the UK, to establish what has become known as a world-leading piece of legislation, which to me really embodies so much of the values and the practices of what it means to be regenerative. Today, I'm speaking with Jane Davidson, widely recognised to be the architect of the Welsh Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. Together, we discuss the impacts that the Act has had on the actions that the Welsh Government has taken, the key features that have enabled it to be successful, the ways of working that are embedded into the heart of the Act that have been crucial in its integrity and in bringing it to life. There are so many lessons in this episode for all of us, no matter what kind of organisation we are embedded in. Just a couple of notes before we start. Firstly, it turns out that having the fancy microphone is only really helpful if you remember to turn it on. Apologies that the quality of my sound is not at its usual standard. Um, and secondly, the interview that you're about to hear took place back in June. It's been a really busy few months for me, hence why it's only being shared now in uh, the beginning of October. Um, but for those of you who are in the Northern Hemisphere who notice a few of Jane and I's references to the summer, that's why. Thank you all so much for being here. Let's dive in. Okay, well, hello, Jane. Welcome to A Thriving Future. How are you today? Oh, hello, Hannah. And thank you so much for inviting me to join you. I'm, I'm very, very well. Good, good. Well, um, we were just having a little bit of discussion, weren't we, about, about the weather. Very kind of British UK thing to do, discuss our, our various weather and the fact that it's been... We had a very kind of wet, cold spring, didn't we? And then it became... We're now in a sort of drought period. There's a lot of crispy grass and changes in um, in plants and so on that we're witnessing around us. But I wonder if you might um, just help us 
understand a bit more about the place that you're speaking to us from. Where are you and what can you tell us about it? Well, I'm, I'm, um, I'm in beautiful West Wales. Um, I live in a, a little village called St Dogmalls, um, and, uh, which is just across the Tyvee River uh, from Cardigan. Um, I live in a, a, an early 18th century barn. Um, which we've made as sustainable as possible. So by by reducing the the um, size of the inside of the barn by over a meter in every room, um, uh, to 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 make it uh, very well insulated. Um, the barn is absolutely beautiful. It's uh, uh, it's a lovely old stone rubble barn. Uh, it has no foundations, but it's sat here since 1740. So I don't think it's going wow. anywhere soon. Um, <laughs> and we just love where we live. We we have 13 acres, um, most of which is over to woodland. We have a, a, a bridal way that runs through our land. So we're very sociable. And uh, wherever we have built anything, we've built from our own woodland. So... You know, we have a beautiful garage with a span of the garage is the largest beautifully bent larch that we could find to, to create mm. the span. So we do very much feel as though we're we're living in nature and with nature. Uh, we grow as much of our food as possible. Um, we keep pigs every two years. We keep sheep every two years. We keep ducks, chickens, turkeys. Um and uh, we have about an acre laid out in very kind of garden organic Lawrence Hills for those who, who remember uh, the master in the 1960s of organic gardening. So we grow via Lawrence Hills um, and, uh, and we grow with the help of neighbours, uh, horse dung, and we make our own fertiliser. And where we don't, we supplement that with seaweed fertiliser from a lovely little company just off the coast. Um, where we live is very beautiful. Um, uh, it is the either the beginning or the end of the Pembrokeshire coast path, uh, mm. depending on whether you uh, you walk from north to south or south to north. We're we're in the north. And we've got wonderful cliffs and wonderful beaches. Um, we have a, 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 a 12th century abbey in St Dogmalls facing a 12th century castle in Cardigan, which is where the Eisteddfod started. And the River Tyvee is, is, uh, is, is in, not in good health um, mm. uh, at the moment, as most rivers are not in good health, uh, but is a sort of wonderful winding 76 miles from... Uh, the top of uh, the Cambrian mountains uh, down to the sea. Um, so I hope I'm conjuring up this picture of uh, sort of beautiful medieval, but we have a ground source heat pump. We're incredibly well insulated. Um, we have solar panels. Um, you know, we so we use renewable energy, uh, and uh, um, and everywhere around us. Um, is kind of tilled in a very traditional way. So we're a sort of little organic jewel. <laughs> <laughs> in a sea of pesticide grass. Mm, mm. Well, I think there's a metaphor in that, isn't there, for lots of lots of different initiatives that are feeling like they're they're in a sea of um of maybe less positive practice around them. But 
wow, what a picture, what a place. Um, I definitely feel like I've got a lot of imagery in my mind of a really idyllic kind of, but also kind of edgy, rugged, um, tenacious kind of place. Uh, it sounds fantastic. Yeah, Thank I think you so much. really, um, I, I'm, I'm, wow, if I'd managed to conjure that up, because that's <laughs> how we feel it is. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a year-round swimmer. Um, mm. so I swim three times a week and I, oddly enough I prefer swimming in the winter to the summer not least because in the winter the, the 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 beaches and the coves are empty and there's just a big group of us we're uh we're we're, we're part of the blue tip movement and we go out early in the morning and um uh and 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 swim but there's so many other things I mean I kayak as well and the you know when you when you swim and there's nobody else around you always see wildlife we quite often swim seals um uh and when i kayak you know i kayak with dolphins i kayak with seals i kayak um once in that for sort of phenomenal um uh bioluminescence yes the phosphorescence that in the water as the sun is going down you know oh. so, yeah, i think it is very special but it's the nature that makes it special and it's the nature in many ways that is un- that, that, that that is under threat um, I mean, the river, you know, the, the, the river is only 49% in good health now. And yeah. although I know that's much better than most of the rivers in England, you know, in, in, uh, for the sort of one of the four big rivers of Wales to be less than 50% in good health is really not very good. And, uh, and it's a combination. I mean, it's a, it's a sewage and, and, and farmer issue. Um, and so these are preventable. And I think it makes me very angry in many ways, particularly as somebody who has spent time in government, that actually we haven't cared enough. Um, we haven't looked after uh, our natural assets in a way that actually benefits us all. So in this idyllic place, we have days when we can't swim because of sewage in the water or in the water. And I think that people need to really open their eyes and look around them for this stuff they need to really sort of see where they are nature is just not just the occasional tree nature is all the elements that actually help humans survive because without fresh water without fresh air uh, without fresh food we do not survive as a species so we need to absolutely focus our attention on ensuring that we have enough for our future yes yes and you know i think there is a a growing awareness that we are nature. You know, there was a, a great big project that's been been part of our history of of separating us, of identifying humans as kind of separate from, in many cases, above the natural world, and in this position of trying to kind of dominate and control nature. And it feels like there is a a growing conversation about how we return to a way of conceiving of ourselves and our relationship with the world as we are part of we are interconnected we are one and the same so the health of that tree and the health of that river cannot be separated from the health of me of us we are completely inextricable and I I would love to talk in a minute about the well-being of future generations act because I but I do think that when I was learning about it reading about it reading about your work there is a a part in um, the book that you've written, Future Gen, Lessons from a Small Country, um, when this is one of your reflections towards the end, that, that, that nature is, is us, that nature is the source of all 
of all, of all everything. And actually, when we think about any system, we need to be thinking out as a system about it as a system within an ecological system, as a as a subset of of part of a bigger ecological system. So, well, yeah, I, I mean, how would you agree? How how does that how does that sit with you and and how you're you're seeing? Yeah, I, I think it's. I think it's really important um, uh, that we know that we are part of nature, that we are not separate. Um, we have just become nature's biggest predator. And obviously nature, nature does have a hierarchy of predators, but um, our, our kind of like dominance um, as the worst predator has actually meant that we are actively and we can only assume it's actively because it's not as if governments don't know about this stuff they've known about it since um professor donella meadows and her team published limits to growth back in 1972 but we are the active predator that has decided that we can wipe out nature where it suits us and it's only really now that we're so starting to see how nature is biting back and it should be the biggest wake up call of all and just that recognition that being an organism <laughs> that being human is still being animal and being animal um uh, means that we do absolutely rely on all the same sources of food as any other animal within nature we just have an ability to change those in ways that others don't but that very intelligence that we have is making us incredibly stupid as a race in terms of trying to ensure futures. And I always feel particularly, I mean, for, you know, I'm a generation older than you, and you should be very angry with my generation for our inability to listen. And actually what's extraordinary to me is that, you know, most other animals in nature listen very, very well indeed. They, they know when there's something that will cause a problem to them. And yet we are causing the problems all the time and still causing at a rate that is going to create a pretty unlivable world if we don't start addressing this soon. Yes, I, I like to think of the human race as being extremely intelligent in a few directions. Um, and there are a host of other directions of intelligence that um, we have either, either overlooked or they're not our greatest natural skill. And we need to recognize that our intelligence isn't kind of all encompassing. And there is much that we need to learn, listen to uh, from the intelligences around us. I think we've stopped being intelligent. I think that's actually part of the problem. We, we, chase, we chase the next innovation i mean they, i don't believe there's a government in the world that doesn't have the word innovation in every single thing that it allocates money to and i used to i mean when i was a government minister i used to think well just how much can you innovate um away from what we actually need to do so we have stopped being intelligent because if we were intelligent we would secure the future of our own species because that's what species do they protect you know, they protect their homes, they protect their young, they protect their food sources. We're not doing any of those things at the moment. Mm. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, it's been an interesting few weeks. We've seen images of, you know, orange skies in New York as the wildfires in Canada, the pollution from that has spread. We've seen ocean temperatures reach historic peaks. Yes, it's been a, it's been a, the most recent examples of a series of examples of, of what you're saying, this evidence that we are not tending to our species. We're not acting in an intelligent way. We're not tending to our home. But those are not the only examples. I mean, I think the, the other thing is, is that, that is how selective um, our understanding of the world is because it's dominated by whichever press sources you use. So if you watch BBC, you will hear about America, you will hear about Europe, but you won't hear about elsewhere. I mean, do you know how bad the floods have been in Africa in the last few weeks? I'm now turned to watching um, Al Jazeera for news because I want to know what's happening across the world. And you get a much better picture of what is happening across the world on a channel that is focused on making sure that people across the world have access to information. So we have so many elements whereby, you know, the things that we should know um, somebody in a newsroom is deciding we don't. And yet we spend, you know, we've had a situation recently where five very rich men have gone down to the Titanic wreck. Um, and we had days and days of coverage about that. Um, whereas three days prior to that, 750 people drowned in the Mediterranean. Um, and we just, I think, have to somehow relearn our priorities and our priorities are helped by how we access information about the rest of the world. So if you only hear about the, the vessel in the Mediterranean, um, where it appears that a lot of people were prepared to uh, turn away when they needed help, um, and, yet, and yet um, just about every help conceivable was available to a set of billionaires um, taking quite a foolish and macabre drive to the bottom of the ocean which is sort of also part of that new trend of um, you know the, the, the new honeypots of the world are the most dangerous and also have been the most pristine. They have been the ones that we've needed to save, you know, so more people go up Everest, more people go to the glaciers, etc. All of this driving more natural and natural problems for us. Mm. Yes. Yes, it, it, it did feel a little reminiscent of kind of the push to go to space. And, you know, what, what about protecting where we are? What about looking at looking after where we are um, before going on kind of what seem to be very egoic uh, adventures abroad, off exploring and conquering. Uh, why not make ourselves at home and get to know where we are? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I think there's a, um, I often go back to a, a, a wonderful um, phrase that uh, Satish Kumar, the man who started Schumacher uh, College uses. And I, I just think that if we had this in our minds every day of our lives, we it would be part of how we behave differently. And he points out um, that uh, eco is the Greek for the planet home. And therefore, ecology is the knowledge of the planet home. 
An economy is the management of the planet home. And yet we as humans who teach economy in all our great universities anywhere in, in the world and hardly ever teach ecology, think it is okay to teach the management of our planet home, planet home without any reference to our knowledge of the planet. So economy without ecology cannot be uh, a successful outcome for yeah. any of us. Yes, could not agree more. <laughs> right, Jane, let's talk a little bit about the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act because, you know, these topics that we've been touching on and exploring already, they're clearly things that are close to your life, your work, your passion, your your loves and things that have woven into um, this act and your role in it. I wonder if you could help give us a kind of bird's eye view of what the act is and what your sort of part was in bringing that into fruition. Well, I think I think very simply, um, the the world knows about the commitment the countries have made to the Sustainable Development Goals and to achieve those Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. Um, and what Wales has done is with that huge commitment to uh, put sustainable development at the heart of everything um, that we have done. And I, I was a minister in the Welsh government um, uh, from 2000 to 2011. And we were really, really committed to putting sustainable development um, at the heart of everything that we did. And it was really, really hard. Um, and it became clear over that period of time. And in the latter part of that time, I had the um, ministerial responsibility for this, that our original duty to promote sustainable development that came with the Government of Wales Act that created uh, the what what was then the National Assembly for Wales and is now the the, the, the Senedd or the Welsh Parliament, um, a duty to promote sustainable development was not enough. Um, I mean, in a sense, in our everything that we've talked about in our conversation so far, I've satisfied the duty to promote, but it doesn't require either of us to do anything different in our lives. And it became clear to me that we needed a duty to deliver. And the, the fundamental um, aspect of this is the Brundtland definition of sustainable development, you know, development that meets the needs of the present without compromising on the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And that, that was developed in 1983. It's the most accepted definition of sustainable development. Uh, there will be people who are saying sustainable development's not enough. We have to be regenerative. And can I say, I absolutely agree with that. But I think the fundamental premise of thinking about whether the action you take has a beneficial uh, effect on future generations is actually the thinking process that we should be taking. And all those of us who have the opportunity to introduce policy or law um, that will endure for a time. So the fundamental element is that you don't take actions today that will have negative impacts tomorrow. And of course, currently, all our developed economies do exactly that. So how do you change the system? And what we worked out in Wales 
is that really what you have to change is the underlying premise um, on which you make decisions. So this is about good decision making. So if the underlying premise is a, that value system whereby you want to make decisions that are good for this generation and for future generations, then what does that look like? How can that be interpreted in policy? Um, and initially we tried to do that. Um, and so we put sustainable development at the heart of everything we did, but actually people didn't know what it meant. Um, it didn't, they didn't know how to interpret that. So mm. I think what, you know, what became clearer and clearer to me um, was that actually we needed to enshrine this in law because we already had a, a legal duty to promote, which turned out to have no um, outcome in law. So we needed a, a legal outcome in law. And that led us to the idea that having a law uh, which would not promote sustainable development, but would require all the public services in the responsibility of Welsh government to deliver. And that was so that's the key difference. So Wales now has a law which requires all its public services to deliver on the well-being of future generations in all their actions. And because of the fact that people didn't understand what that looked like, there needed to be a set of outcomes that people could recognise and create policies or indeed other laws to help achieve. And so there are seven goals. And those uh, seven goals um, actually um, enshrine the 17 SDGs within them. Uh, and that and that that is really important because the 17 SDGs are, uh, you know, quite complex for people mm. to get their head around. But what happened through the sort of committee process in Wales was there's bringing that down to think about what are the core principles that underline the sustainable development goals. And they are a new definition of prosperity that is not take, make, waste, but actually innovative and low carbon and within environmental limits. They are about resilience in the context of nature. Personally, I wish it had been called the nature goal, but the principle is the right one, that maintaining biodiversity is not enough. It has to be about improving, uh, increasing biodiversity and in the recognition of the climate challenge. The healthier goal is not about how many doctors turn up or um, how many nurses there are, although those are really important aspects. It's what are the conditions for good health and how do you create so that more people can be healthier? And that's similar with the more equal goal, so that it's about well, what are the conditions that can create more equality? And you won't be surprised to know, for example, that, you know, whereas the um, UK government is pulling up its borders, Wales describes itself as a nation of sanctuary. Um, the cohesive community goals is actually very simple because it's about, you know, having, having safe, uh, well-connected, vibrant 
communities because that's the kind of community I live in and people mm. want to live in and people mm. move to where I live because it's exactly uh, like that. Um, having vibrant culture and thriving Welsh language, very, very important to us. Having um, one of the oldest minority languages in the world, but our culture is not just the Welsh language, it's all those other languages. And finishing with global responsibility, um, our seventh goal, but although they don't come in order, so it might be our first goal, depending mm. on your view of the world, is, is making sure we can't offshore our emissions in the sense that mm -hmm. uh, anything we do in Wales, we have to behave in the same way when we behave globally. So there's really interesting projects in Wales, which are about planting trees. Initially, it was about the size of Wales, but now they've already planted trees three times the size of Wales in Africa and are carrying on. Um, and it's about, you know, and looking at, for example, how Wales can become a deforestation nation in terms of making sure that, um, uh, you know, we remove as much as possible soy or palm oil project, uh, products that are causing damage. But I think that what, what is really different about the act is, is that what, in a way, people could say, oh, well, that's just Wales's interpretation of the um, SDGs. And it, it's true to say that as a result of our interpretation of the SDGs, Wales is the only country in the world that has a legal mechanism to achieve the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. But the other really important aspect, which is on the face of the Act, is that is how people are required to think. And this, to me, is just what legislation should be doing in terms of future generations. Because how people are required to think when they make decisions, they are required to think long term. They're required to think preventatively. They're required to collaborate with each other for outcomes. They're required to integrate as many of those goals as possible and to maximize their uh, commitment towards them. And in many ways, most importantly, they're required to involve people about whom decisions are being made. Mm -hmm. Now that this fundamentally changes the way decisions are being made. So you see a lot more a cooperative and collaborative work. You see more climate assemblies and assembly models springing up as, as, as ways of looking and, and tackling really difficult issues. But you also see some amazing examples of where, because of having this legislation, Wales has stopped its road building programme, mm -hmm. put its effort and money into integrated transport systems, Wales has got one of the first pilots in the world on universal basic income with in terms of tackling inequality with the poorest group of people, those young people who leave care at the age of 18. There's now a current pilot and it's going to look at at least two cohorts, so three years in total initially, where those young people will be paid a reasonable salary and given lots of support to determine life outcomes. Because we know that one of the reasons that many really disadvantaged young people um, don't take up any, up any opportunities is they ha neither have the money nor support that those of us who've grown up with parents have. So, you know, suddenly Wales is taking brave decisions. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ban smacking when I was education minister and could never get enough support. And it just sailed through. <laughs> after the Future Generations Act. There's big tree planting 
um, programs going on. The 30 by 30 commitment in terms of, um, uh, you know, planting trees across Wales by 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 2030. I mean, it's not it's not perfect yet. Yeah. There are still lots of people who'd say it's not doing enough, but it's the idea that is that these things which would have been seen as outliers are now normal. Mm-hmm. And so whereas all the work I did um, in the uh, um, early 2000s uh, that meant that Wales has now become one of the three best recycling nations in the world, um, recycling is the easy part of the waste. Um, kind of agenda and now the way that Wales is looking to reach uh, net zero waste um, has been absolutely catapulted by having a well-being of future generations act repair shops are springing up everywhere libraries of things are springing up everywhere Um, there's more people growing uh, not enough because Wales only grows three percent of its fruit and vegetables but actually suddenly uh, oddly enough the that, that there are always going to be some benefits in the context of climate change, particularly for um, a country that's broadly situated uh, on the latitude we are in the world. Uh, having warmer summers will will extend our growing season. So suddenly it becomes uh, possible for the UK to be growing um, more of its fruit and vegetables and perhaps moving away from the sort of livestock that has been the mainstay. So... There are, there are opportunities here, but all of this is within that notion that A, we have to act on climate, um, both in taking action to prevent further climate change and adapting to the situation we will find ourselves in, and B, we absolutely have to enhance biodiversity and all our thinking must be about living within environmental limits. So Wales is looking at what we're calling a foundational economy. How close can you get an economy to the places that people live in? And it's primarily a rural country, that is really important. Transport's a huge issue because most people in Wales have private cars because we live yeah. a very long way. I, I live 30 miles from a railway station uh, and the bus times don't link with it. And as somebody who's working, um, it would be impossible to operate without a private car, but are there different ways of car share systems or whatever? So all of these things are now possible. And so that point about Wales being the only country in the world that has a legal mechanism is now something that other countries, particularly this year, now that the UN is looking to create an envoy on future generations uh, on the Wales model and is now starting to ask other, ask other countries about what they're doing for future generation on the Wales model. Little Wales, three million people and 10 million yeah. is is actually punching well above its weight. It's, uh, you know, and it's great to see because it will galvanise the policymakers. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jane, I just think it's phenomenal. Um, hearing you talk about well, so many things about it, that I think, feel so remarkable. So many organisations and individuals who are trying to shift organisations towards embracing more of this, shifting to a more a longer term perspective, thinking more holistically. It feels so challenging. So many of our incentive structures, our cultures, our processes are totally not set up for that. And what I find 
really inspiring in what you've just talked about is how when those structures are adjusted, when those, you know, the legal requirements, you mentioned that the ways of working that are required of the civil servants and the politicians, the, the kind of outcomes that are there, when those are set in line with the needs and wishes of the well-beings of future generation, when it's set with that as a, as a key orientation, look at what becomes possible and maybe even easy. Look what becomes enabled by shifting those, those structures because I witnessed so many organizations who have, you know, and individuals within those organizations who are really working hard to try and, and kind of move towards that orientation. But because the structures, the incentives, the processes within, within which they're operating are not geared towards that, it's a really, really uphill struggle. Um, whereas what you're kind of demonstrating is that having done this hard work of putting in place these foundations, it's kind of released the people within the organization to actually do what maybe makes most sense. Um, and it just feels enormously inspiring. But I'm certain that it was, you know, not just a simple, straightforward process to get this in place. And, and in your book, you talk about a number of the kind of permutations and ups and downs of actually getting us to the place that it is now or was when you when you left office. And I'm, I'd love to start with the, the kind of the idea of thinking more holistically and more systemically. You mentioned Donella Meadows and the limits to growth, and you use Donella's kind of you use some of her work, her five tools in how you structure the book. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the importance of systemic thinking, working, practicing systemically, and what it was like to try and support an organization of people who may or may not have background, interest, inclination towards working that way? How did you manage to bring in, alongside others, kind of a very systemic perspective into this work? I think, I, I think um, it's, it's probably uh, important to say at this point that this only works in the context of the authority that Welsh Government has, um, the powers that Welsh Government has, and all the organisations that are responsible to Welsh Government. So it's, it's more than 40 organisations. It's all the public sector um, in Wales uh, that is responsible to Welsh Government. But there are, there are areas of the public sector that are outside that are still in the responsibility of the UK government. So particularly associated with the justice system, um, the police, for example, um, the courts. And so we have this rather interesting interface when on the one hand, there is this permission to think differently in Wales and, and, and the public sector in general, including those responsible to the UK, have chosen to engage with this which is great, but they are not obligated. If, they're, if their masters or mistresses in the UK government held them to account for doing so, they would have to stop. So it's one of the reason I, uh, reasons I called my book um, Future Gen Lessons from a Small Country is that there is a very strong message, I think, that is not just at country level, but at organisation level. This could be done in a business. This could be done in a school. This could be done in a city uh, or, uh, of having a 
systems holistic approach to how you make decisions in the best interests of current and future generations. I mean, that's the that's the fundamental premise. Um, but we are constrained every day of our lives, not just about the powers issue, but about the fact that we are working in an environment that is working against us every day of our lives. So that in many ways, the social and environmental decisions we make are much easier than the economic ones. Because of course, the duty that all businesses have in funding their shareholders, and this has been writ large um, over the last few weeks. I mean, you've, you've mentioned the weather and the dryness, and of course, we now have um, uh, water companies putting hosepipe bands you know, on the southeast of England, you know, all our fields went yellow um, in in Wales. Um, uh, but the the water companies have a greater duty to give money to their shareholders than they have to give water to mm -hmm. them, mm -hmm. which is a ludicrous situation. So the privatization of those very things that keep us alive. Um, you know, the marketization, uh, the monetization of the absolute um, uh, services that we need in our daily, daily lives is serving us incredibly badly. But of course, changing that model uh, would either be very expensive uh, if, if people were to be paid the value of those shares or very unpopular if people just have to uh, lose those investments. And the irony as well in here is that actually now that privatization does not mean that Britain owns pretty well anything, that most of our energy, most of our water is owned by other governments which have not privatization, privatized um, their natural assets in this way. So we probably have pretty well the worst model of any country in the developed world because we have privatized those very necessary services and effectively sold them off to other richer countries. In doing so, we've lost the ability to control the outcomes of them. Um, and yet people are increasingly not going to be able to have access to the very services um, that we need on a daily basis. And water is going to be just about the biggest one. So I think it's important to say that much as I'd love this to be a sort of panacea uh, that would enable uh, Wales to demonstrate that these different ways of thinking um, uh, are you know, a really strong message for any developed economy. The systems element for those countries that own the way they manage the economy must be about ensuring that all aspects, the economy, the environment, the society and the cultural elements all have to work towards this outcome. And this actually, at the end of the day, is an approach that is as much about trying to create a just transition from where we are 
to where we need to be in the context of responding to the climate challenge and a nature positive one. And I don't know how many countries are on that path yet. Although it is fair to say that, you know, I'm, I'm regularly in countries um, uh, such as New Zealand or in dialogue with Finland or in parts of Canada or states in Australia um, who are really interested in, in, in this agenda. Um, I'm, I'm in discussions with uh, cities in France, in Spain, um, in many places in America as well, um, who want to do things at city level. And often those very cities which have, you know, put themselves up as the sort of 40 cities that want to do most on climate change um, are kind of like uh, at the forefront of what kind of actions you can take. Um, about buildings, around transport, around energy, around food, because they are the big emitters, but they're also opportunities to do things differently at local level. And we are seeing lots of good examples across the world of individual things. I mean, the amount of bicycle lanes that Paris has created in the last year is off scale. Uh, you know, uh, sort of thing as a, as a city that, you know, was known to be so awful for its traffic. Um, and we're just seeing all sorts of really interesting outcomes. But I think in, in essence, um, these are, this is sort of some of the, the kind of negative end. And it's also the reasons that people were saying, oh, we can't do this. You know, we can't, we're not big enough. You know, Wales isn't big enough. We can't do it. We we only have the money from the UK government from the services that we are required to deliver. So any money you take away from those services will make those services poorer. So that means, you know, we'll have to take money away from health or education um, uh, to uh, or transport or economy to deliver these outcomes. And I think it took a long time before people realised that it wouldn't be about taking the money away but it would be about requiring those services to think differently. And what we have, I think, in probably every single one of the public services that is in the responsibility of, of the Welsh government um, is some really good practice on this now. We also have laggards in every area. And it's probably um, important for me to say, for people who, 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 who stayed with us on this call so far, that actually... Um, three really important accountability mechanisms. The first one is, this is not just about the government. It is the government and all the public services that uh, it is responsible for in Wales. And one of the things that was really important to me was that actually the government is also accountable under this. And that is really unusual, but it was one of the er elements that I was very keen to see taken forward when I first proposed the legislation. Because if the government isn't accountable to it, it will not hold others accountable too. So this is about the government also has to comply with the Wellbeing Future Generations Act. And this is only one of the mechanisms that holds all the other pub public services accountable. The second mechanism to hold them accountable is the um, Auditor General in Wales, because another very important point for me in the proposal of the legislation was that it should be audited in the same way as all other public services, because if it were audited separately, it would become less important. So it's 
be about how the audit arrangements change in order to recognise that everybody had now has this new overarching duty to look after current and future generations in an intergenerational way. And thirdly, and most visibly, and the one that um, a number of other countries are looking at at the moment, and the UN is, has, is taken on board with its new envoy proposal, is the Commissioner for Future Generations. And that Commissioner uh, is an individual, but they have an office, uh, they have strong legal support, they have strong policy support, um, and they are critical friends to all the public services, including the government, in terms of helping them on the pathway with best practice, identifying best practice in Wales and the world. But they also have the ability to hold reviews that will actually expose which organisations are not um, delivering according to the legislation. Um, and obviously they will focus that most uh, in terms of those organisations which are paying lip service um, despite being required to deliver effectively. And the commissioner has a seven year term. And so we just literally have moved from our first commissioner to our second commissioner. And our first commissioner, a woman called Sophie Howe, um, was very much about helping people on the pathway, about uh, telling the world, about this new experiment, um, looking for comments and friends and best practice in this and bringing that back to Wales and bringing the best of Wales to the world. But our second commissioner, Derek Walker, who comes from a very strong social enterprise background um, and in fact was responsible previously for the organisation that cre created the largest numbers of social enterprises per head of any part of the United Kingdom. Um, what he wants to do is to make sure that now the uh, all the public services from the local authorities to the health boards um, to the education providers to the fire services uh, etc are and the government are held to account for their actions so that actually this second term of a commissioner will move from the enabling to delivery and people have had enough time now. They know that the Act is of interest across the world. They know what the Act does. They now have to demonstrate how they are delivering on those preventative, long-term, collaborative, integrated, involving people in decisions, ways of working. Mm -hmm. So there is a much bigger emphasis now on delivery. And I just feel that's, that's appropriate. Both commissioners have done the right job at the right time. Um, and I think that out of this second term of the commissioner, we will see a much greater focus on what good looks like. And that'll be helpful mm -hmm. just to Wales, but to yeah. our countries too. Oh, fascinating. Um, so many questions because um, a number of the people who I'm engaging with all the time and who might be listening to this podcast are embedded in organisations. As I say, they, they might be trying to sort of be the internal catalyst, shift that organisation towards a longer term, more systemic view, towards putting the well-being of future generations more at the heart. And it's not always a straightforward process. There are some people who are bought in easily and others who really resist any kind of shift in that direction. And I'm thinking about, you know, in the earlier days when this was maybe newer on the scene, it's less established in the way that you just described. Now you're kind of in a conversation where 
people are bought in and we're into sort of getting on with it, doing it, delivering on it. In those early days, how did you go about or how did you and others go about helping others to see, you know, not all oh, this is new duty, this new duty, these new things we've got to do, these extra bits, we've got to go further. How did that not become a, oh my God, well, this just feels like a, an extra burden. You know, let's not do that. How can we possibly sideline those conversations? How did you manage to get people around to a place where they were saying, yes, we're up for this. We're going to help you. We want to make this um, be realized, really embedding it across the government. How did you get past? Was there any of that? And, and if so, how did you deal with that? Oh, there was a huge amount of that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably pretty universal, but I think it always means when there's a change. And I think that um, in many ways, it's about not selling it in that way. Because a new duty is sort of a new requirement for how you present information to government or whatever. Mm -hmm. And if you've been doing one way for years, um, uh, then actually people feel that the new duty is just more hard work. And is it going to achieve any other outcomes? But I think I think it was the duty to promote sustainable development being in the Government of Wales Act and having in the first um, 12 years of government in Wales, um, a, a cabinet that mostly, not all, there were resistors as ministers, but mostly not all, and importantly, a leader um, in Rodri Morgan, um, who was the uh, first minister of Wales um, for two terms, a leader, who passionately believed in this. And I think it's the, there always have to be a set of circumstances that work positively to help ideas go through. I mean, the best ideas uh, can fail because the moment is not there. I think in many ways, um, when, I, when I look back and people say, how did you do this? And it, I, I think that my part was relatively small. I think my, my part was to identify that actually the duty to promote didn't work because we all tried our hardest and then realized that actually it didn't have an outcome and therefore a duty to promote was a nice to have and people treated it as a night to have well yes we yeah of course we'd, we'd love to be more sustainable but we've got to deal with this flooding we've got to deal with the foot and mouth except we've got to deal with this massive increase in poverty these falling down schools all of that so I think that that was part of it. Um, but I think that it's when we when we tried to make uh, when, when we made um, uh, sustainable development, our central organizing principle of cabinet under Rodri Morgan's leadership. So, of course, all the cabinet said yes, even if they didn't plan to support <laughs> um, the um, uh, it turned out that it was really hard because people didn't know how to do it. So. But people weren't were positive about the idea. It was just, you, well, we don't have enough, so we have to think about how to do it. So we actually we we brought in Forum for the Future um, and worked with them. We worked very closely with the Sustainable Development Commission because these were both organisations that um, were politically neutral um, and had worked with. Um, political administrations across the whole of the UK, um, uh, in fact, in doing so, had probably had worked with actually all the political parties. 
all different parts of the UK. Um, and it became quite clear that actually it had to be part of this wider vision. And in many ways, um, you know, the reason we have legislation in Wales was due to the incoming Conservative Liberal Democrat government in 2010 that removed the Sustainable Development Commission overnight. Not with thought, just as a sort of byproduct of a of a policy which was um, they wanted to create some new non-departmental public bodies, as they were called. Um, and so any that were kind of like in the way were removed, um, not with a fanfare, but with a whisper. So most people wouldn't have even realised that we'd had this incredible Sustainable Development Commission, 12 people from all over the world, a fantastic pedigree, working to help UK um, country governments to deliver more sustainable outcomes, giving them really high quality advice. And on their 10th anniversary, they were just disbanded. Um, yeah, that was the moment for me. I mean, literally going back from Bristol to Cardiff, sort of an hour journey, when you know, the four points I've discussed um, about, you know, we had to have a duty to deliver, not to promote, that the government itself had to be accountable um, to that duty, because otherwise um, it would ask others to do things um, uh, that uh, couldn't otherwise be done. Um, uh, it uh, we had to have an independent um, arbiter of whether or not the government and public services uh, were successful, and that was the Future Generations Commissioner, and it had to be audited along with the way everybody else was audited, so that the audit system had to change, uh, not something else. Now those those have survived, and I'm delighted. So in, when I'm considered the architect of the act. I'm the architect of the framework of the act. But these are the learnings that we learnt on the way in terms of actually contributing to systems change. So at a small level, <laughs> in constrained uh, <laughs> environments, but it is systems change because it yeah. changes the values on which you make decisions. Um, and it's framed in a way that means that any government of any political persuasion can still use it. So I wouldn't anticipate that um, if the Conservatives, for example, got into government in Wales through a coalition or whatever, that they'd want to get rid of the Act. They would just change the framing for how they took decisions for the benefit of future generations. But they would not take extractive decisions. They could not take take make waste decisions. They couldn't take decisions um, that would trash biodiversity. So what the Act does give um, is a, um, well, I was going to say minimal, but we actually don't know how much protection it gives uh, against the worst behaviour. I think it only protects against the worst behaviour, um, but we will find out uh, if a government is elected that wants to pursue what, in my view, would be worst behaviour. But generally, um, uh, that generally most political parties are actually signed up in support of these principles of action. I mean, where you would get the debate is whether you trade off 
um, you know, some aspect of nature to the economy, which is the traditional route. Um, now there's a much greater emphasis on making sure that the nature element is protected, um, which is a really positive uh, change in the way that people are thinking. Mm, mm. A few things that you've just said, I would love to, to kind of pick up on. Um, so one is, is leadership. So you mentioned Rodri Morgan and the importance of his leadership as kind of being a crucial enabling factor for allowing something potentially that could have been seen as quite arduous or challenging or overly ambitious or whatever, um, allowed that to come through. That was one key element was, was his leadership. I wonder if there's anything that you would say, because obviously it hasn't only been him, there's been a number of other leaders that have been involved in the act and it's, and as you mentioned, the two commissioners, new commissioner now as well. I wonder if there's any lessons that you can draw about the kind of leadership that is needed in order for initiatives like this to make progress, to survive, to persist in organisations. What what does good leadership look like in this? You talk about him being passionate about this as a cause. What else would you add? I'm a great fan of, um, I think, what they call servant leadership. Mm. Uh, Because when I think back, I mean, I, you know, I, I know there were points when I was a minister, you know, when I felt that, you know, I was leading the agenda in Wales, but you can't lead unless there are people with you. So leaders require followers. And if you define them as leaders and followers, then when the leader goes, the followers go too. So you don't change. Um, so I think I, that was in my um, early and now rejected form of leadership. <laughs> <laughs> now it's about winning the argument. And I think that's when you, systems change is about um, winning an well, maybe not even winning an argument because it's not so much about an argument. It's it's providing hope. I think leadership is about providing hope. And in fact, the other very key person, um, uh, and interestingly, I dedicated my book to to two Morgans. I dedicated it to Rodri Morgan, who um, sadly passed away. Um, who I thought was the most incredible leader and I'd worked with. I actually ran his constituency office for a while um, as well. But, you know, his vision of Wales, um, you know, as a, as, as a thriving, just nation uh, was terribly important. But you could say that my, um, my followership started with a man called Morgan Parry, um, who was actually the person who ran... Um, WWF in Wales uh, when I very, very first uh, became a minister. And I was just really impressed by WWF's capturing, because of course they've been an incredibly important organisation in capturing the state of nature. And just sort of seeing the, um, the diminution in the state of nature. And then they brought out um, this idea of one planet living and I really embraced that so I utterly was persuaded by what is called the ecological footprint you know when we think about how many of us there are in the world and we basically divide the world up into notional hectares land and sea and look at um, you know how many notional hectares we use individually and that depends hugely on what country you live in so you you know if you if you live in India, although we know that there is a, a you know a lot of fossil fuel use, um, we know that there is a, a a massive increase in meat eating as as the as the nation becomes 
richer and we did that so why shouldn't mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. sort of thing um uh you see you see these elements but still find that um india on an ecological footprint when you divide its population by its area um is not is is not even using one planet's worth of resources for each individual whereas you and i um, well, I'm probably using about three and you might be using nearer four because I'm in Wales and you're in England and Wales is the part of the UK. And then you get in countries like Australia, in, in, in some parts of Australia, the, the big coal states in Australia or America, that will be eight times. So, you know, if some people are using eight times the resources of the planet, others and mostly African um, and uh, you know, Asian countries that are still struggling with their own economies will be using a quarter of a planet. And it, it just felt to me as a, a really easy way of identifying um, the problem. Because if you see any three-year-old, how many planets do we have? Um, they'll say one. You know, mm-hmm. how, how many planets do we yeah. have? Because they have won. <laughs> it's a, so, so actually, the inequality that we perform on this single planet of ours. Now, it turns out, actually, the ecological footprint is quite a hard thing to nail down because it's a concept, not a reality. But it is still very much at the heart of my thinking. The idea of one planet living is very much at the heart of, our, of the way I live my own life. And I think it's the... Uh, the concept of one planet living came out from WWF at just the right time for me because I'd been education minister, I'd introduced sustainability into the curriculum, I'd created new curricular opportunities for early years, I'd introduced a baccalaureate, um, we'd uh, introduced pupil councils and pupils on governing bodies, we'd done a lot to to both look look at the interests of young people and put sustainable development at the heart of the curriculum. And I'm delighted that all those initiatives have have been consolidated in the Welsh uh, new statutory curriculum from three to 18 that started last year. Um, But the uh, the kind of principle of um, actually thinking about others all the time when you're thinking about uh, the actions you take I hadn't really engaged with until that moment. So I pretty much got behind the idea of One Planet Wales. And um, we were in coalition with Plaid Cymru at the time, and we were able to do um, a consultation, which we actually called One Wales, One Planet, um, supported by both political parties. And the really interesting thing about that was that it, it galvanised opportunity you know, I, I visited hundreds of small groups, you know, Welsh-speaking, English community councils, um, WI, Merchadawar, the Welsh equivalent, all over Wales, with the ideas that actually now underpin the goals in the Act. And that was with the support of the WWF. And it was very much about, well, if we're thinking this way, what this is, if we make this our permission to think differently, what does it look like? And so One Wales, One Planet is actually the document that underpins the well-being of Future Generations Act because it was really strongly supported. You know, people wanted more allotments. They wanted stuff closer to home. They wanted the kind, I mean, actually the definition of, 
of um, you know sort of cohesive communities as being kind of like you know safe um, and connected and vibrant it's very much comes from that earlier work and then of course the UN in 2014 they they conducted this big discussion about the SDGs about the world we want and look, I left politics in 2011 and went and work in, in sustainability in a university. But, you know, the, then the, the, the government cleverly didn't then consult itself, but they used the Wales Council for Voluntary Action, which re represents thousands of charities, thousands of people in their own communities, and basically reconsulted on all of these issues and got the same answers. So the goals that are in the Act, are actually goals for Wales by Wales from and I think that that so when you're when you're wanting to change the frame it has to be about hope and opportunity and much however grim I feel when I feel when I see the next flood the next um climate crisis the next group of people who are fleeing their country I still think we have to have hope that actually we will persuade more people. In a little country like Wales, it took 16 years of the idea of, the, uh, of trying to deliver on promoting sustainable development to getting an act. And there are many people in Wales will say that the first seven years of the act has still been tinkering at the edges, but I think it will probably take another 16 years but this legislation that turns normal systems on its head is really new, but is every time people found out about it, they love it. They love the fact that they could potentially, you know, slap the act uh, virtually or otherwise on the door of a government or a uh, local authority official and say, you're not doing what you should be doing under this act. I want to call you out. And so that the more of that, the more this becomes a people's act, um, the more will happen in this. Yeah, in the end, the leadership's actually coming from the act. You know, there was kind of leadership of people that we started off with, of different people that, you know, different things that they were embodying, stories they were telling, language they were using, and then actually, and the vision they were holding. But then now that's all kind of embodied in the act and, and the act is providing the leadership as we're seeing, kind of saying, being an inspiration and a source of um, hope and visions for so many other countries elsewhere. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think I think the the, the journey, um, the journey is absolutely critical. So it's not just the what. Most legislation is about what. It's how. So yes. the goals are the what and the ways of working are the how to get there. And they are completely integrated. They're not yet integrated in the way everybody operates it, but they are completely integrated as a package. And I think that's what's becoming very interesting um, in other countries is that you can't necessarily get to a what without a how. But now I'm I'm back doing a um, a role, not just for the government, for, but for Plaid Cymru, so collaborative. The role I've been asked to to lead on is to look at whether or not in Wales, because uh, Wales was the first parliament and government to, to um, uh, declare a climate emergency, whether or not 
Wales could actually shift its legislative obligation and bring it forward from 2050 on net zero to 2035. I've been charged with the responsibility independently to lead on that work. I'm taking no money for it and none, no, but none, none of the group I've selected from across the world to help me on this is either. But our job is to do the how. We know we want to achieve net zero. That is the what. We know that net zero, according to the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, has to be a just transition and nature positive and reflect cultures and language and not offshore emissions. So starting from here, how do we get to that? And how, do we, how we get to that has to be how we collaborate uh, and cooperate with others to achieve these outcomes, how we think preventatively, how we think long term, how we involve people about whom decisions are being made and how we integrate outcomes. We have a set of challenges that we've put out on Wales Net Zero 2035 to ask people to help us in mm. looking at how we get a delivery pathway from 2025 to at the latest 2035 that brings emissions down to net zero in a nature positive and just transition way in relation to energy, buildings, transport, food, because they're the biggest emitters, and looking at the future of jobs, work and education. But we're not just looking at those in isolation because you can't talk about new food sources unless you think about the energy transport buildings. <laughs> so we're overlaying all of this in a Bonella Meadows systems type way. And we're overlaying all of this with what we're calling the domains, which is how do we um, look at regulation, finance? So once again, a total systems approach. Do we need new legislation? Which bits could only be done with the UK government? Which bits could be done with the Where can we bring private financing in because this is good for the world? And once again, we hope that there will be lessons from a small country because I can't yet find, and I'm putting a big call out to anybody to this, if you know of any country that has developed delivery pathways to this emission reduction in a 10-year plan, we really need to know about it. Because sadly, I'm finding we're in the same situation on this as we are with most things. We argue about whether or not it's going to be 1.5 degrees or one degree without doing anything about it. I'm hoping the Wellbeing of Future Generation Act will help us and therefore help others to see how we create these delivery pathways. Wow. I mean, what a task. I, it's so delightful. Um, one of the most wonderful things about hosting this podcast and doing the work that I do is that I get to encounter all of these fantastic people <laughs> doing all this amazing work. And yes, it's just, well, anyone who's listening who has any you know, thoughts, as you say, Jane, of, of things that other organisations, other countries are doing that, um, that can feed into this work, let us know, but wow, that just sounds wonderful. It's so heartening to hear that that work's going on. Before we come to um, kind of towards the end of our chat, I wanted just to circle back to a couple of things. I wanted to read to you a couple of things from your book, if I may. 
um, that I think uh, (laughs) that struck me. Um, So firstly, one quote that you that you make is, well, actually, this is your words. Changing culture is the most powerful tool to create the marriage between evidence and empathy needed to enable the delivery of a future generations framework. Unless the culture and values of an organization change, its hearts and minds, as the act encourages, they will be rhetoric rather than action. And then another piece, because I know you talk about culture as involving a whole host of different things, leadership, history, language. I wanted just to mention this quote from Simon Billsborough, who you cite just at the beginning of chapter three. And he's saying, will children's understanding of nature be better than ours? Their use of language will tell us. So my take is as follows. Successful delivery of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act will mean that the words of nature, words like dandelion, otter, bramble, acorn, and conquer, will once again be part of the everyday language of children and be reflected in the way they live their lives as adults. I would love you just to say a little bit, because language is one of those things that I could see flowing through the book as you talk about you know, variously, we talked earlier about the difference between a duty to, you know, to protect or to promote versus a duty to deliver. We talked about we talked about the difference between sustainable development and well-being. Um, there are various different points in the book when you talk about the importance of language and how it can open things or close things. I wonder if you could just share with us a little bit about how to grapple with that incredibly powerful tool of culture, how to what to kind of hold close to your heart, what to to really be aware of and sensitive to as we try and engage with that that messy and important world of culture as we seek to shift our organisations in these these directions. Well, thank you for quoting Simon Billsborough. That's just brilliant because he he was the civil servant on whom I most relied in all my work in the context of well-being of future generations up until I left government in 2011. And I was really pleased when when he wrote what he did about the words, because um, people won't necessarily be aware, but every year the Oxford English Dictionary, um, in order to accommodate new words, ditches words. And what's been deeply shocking over the last few years is that many of the words that have been ditched have been to do with nature. Um, And it's because they've fallen out of use. Now, I'm sure everybody on the call will recognize all the words that that Simon says uh, in his contribution to my book, but they're at risk, these words, um, because they, they describe aspects of nature and therefore they attribute a set of knowledge Um, to people. Um, And so we do need to get back, um, remembering that if we have the power of the word to describe, we get the knowledge from the power of that word. And if we lose the word, we lose the knowledge. When we talk about the real world, you know, disparaging people cynically think it's something about, well, if you don't go for for an extractive economy, you're not in the real world. But the real world is sitting in the dirt watching a snail come out of its shell. The the real world is lifting a compost lid and seeing a knot of slow worms. Or what happened to us 
in the last few days, three things on our pond. We had a, a grass snake um, slithering across the pond. We had 10 ducklings on the pond and we had 10,000 little toads came out the pond. I mean, that, that's the real world and that's never, um, uh, there. But I, so I think that that point about words and it's actually linked to culture as well, because the words that are being that are replacing the nature words are all to do with sort of technology. And uh, futures thinking, um, so that we we are we are replacing the real world with a fantasy world, um, as it were. So we've got a situation now, I think, where the, the culture of organisations rests in the past, and it needs to come into futures thinking. And I wish I'd been the person who suggested that culture was the fourth pillar of the well-being of future generations act i wasn't i still don't know who it was but it was absolutely superb because those of us historically who have worked with this have worked with that interplay between environment um and society and economy a three-legged stool and i often say what we have now is a four-legged i stead for chair of legislation because the i stead for chair is the biggest best most beautifully carved chair in Wales that is granted to the person who has excelled in well in Welsh culture so I just feel that this notion of culture in all its forms culture as our own heritage um and uh and gathering together the indigenous wisdom of our nation of our nations but also that organizational culture that determines how people behave because at end of the day this has to go back this is a values framework and values framework where the culture is to behave ethically in the interest of current and future generations to think in a circular way to always be looking at testing as whether the outcomes you're proposing will negatively affect the poorest in society these are the tests that will help the world survive Mm, phenomenal. I I know that there is a um, Wellbeing of Future Generations Act UK um, that led by John Bird and supported by other members of parliament. Um, I I understand that it's sort of stalled in the House of Commons, that it's it's been there for a while. Um, you may know more about, about that than I do, but... Um, I, I can imagine that for, again, for people who are listening who are maybe in different forms of government or maybe in other forms of organisation, maybe in corporations or charities or, or in religious institutions, other forms of, of organisation, maybe they are experiencing a similar thing, a feeling, oh, this has got a bit stuck. This, this intention, this work has become stalled. How can we unpick it? How can we loosen it and, and give it the energy to kind of build momentum and, and grow and flourish in the way that the Wellbeing of Future, Future Generations Act reached that place where now, as you say, it's kind of, it's off, it's got its own life. It, it has a, a certain amount of resilience and persistence such that no matter who the incoming government is, it, it should persist. Do you have any, any tips for listeners on, on how to help these initiatives to really kind of spread and, and gather momentum and, and become unstuck? I think, I, think um, I can give hope to people in the sense that 
you know, it's a bit rocky in Scotland at the moment, but the um, Scottish National Party is in partnership with the Green Party. And uh, one of the conditions of that cooperation was about developing a well-being of future generations act um that they that northern ireland assembly may not be up and running at the moment but civil society in northern ireland i've been working very closely with and there is a very strong proposition for any incoming um assembly which is supported by most political parties not all um uh that there should be a well-being of future generations act that the journey to a well-being of future generations act in ireland has already started um and I think, I mean, it may well require a change of government in England, if we're honest, um, but uh, which I think would open an opportunity for a dialogue about it. I think that the um, perceived soft power of Wales, which is a Labour-led uh, government, um, might well therefore be of more interest to a, um, uh, an incoming Labour government in Westminster. But I think that there is a... a there is a fear of taking decisions um, through this framework. And I think those of us who've lived with this over uh, the last uh, decade or more of the development and the implementation would say there should be no fear because this is the biggest opportunity we have in the context of being fairest to the most people and particularly demonstrating a recognition of the negative actions um, that our generation has played and um, making sure that the future is more positive. Owning, owning up, you know, we, we're, we're countries are starting to own up to um, activities such as slavery, which were centuries ago. I think it's important that we own up uh, in the context of what we're doing now and do everything we can to change it. And most things will only change with the UK government changing its emphasis. Because if the fiduciary duty, which currently means that businesses have this major duty to their current shareholders, was changed to current and future shareholders, that might have a dramatic effect. If risk assessment had to fully take uh, climate risk into account, that would stop buildings on floodplains overnight. If the insurance system had to take current and future generations into account, it would change insurance overnight. So, you know, the big elements that prop up the financial system, if the banks were required to ensure um, the protection of future generations, all of these elements would involve some tweaking of current laws, but we could take all the architecture of the take, make, waste, is extractive economy and change their purposes. And it would take time, but there are people who now want to do that. There are actuaries who want to do that. There are barristers who want to, there are insurers who want to do that. There are risk managers who want to do that. There are climate activists who want to do that. And the more people who work in those fields who want to make those changes, um, the BPs of this world won't do it. The shells of this world won't do it. They'll have to be made to do it by um, the external financing risk assurance of their operations. So, you know, I, I kind of feel that 
Um, and I know, I mean, I have, I know people who, who work for these organisations who are trying desperately to change things from the inside. It, it won't happen. But I just think it's, it's, it's being, it's the carpe diem moment. The carpe diem moment for me in the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act was when the Sustainable Development Commission was removed without any recognition of any role that it had played, sort of by accident. And it just happened to be at the same time as there was the, the final conference and what was going in going to go into our next manifesto. So I was able to take a an emergency resolution <laughs> on long-term thinking, which is a, to to our party manifesto discussion. And so it is about seizing the opportunity when it arises. And I think that in all those industries, which are mostly populated by young people, there will be revolutions mm -hmm. in terms of uh, you know, what they are prepared to do. Yeah. Um, and what they are prepared to promote. Yeah, I do think that, um, as you point out, kind of at the moment, we, we have a game that is rigged in a certain direction. And it's, it's, it's a, it requires individuals, it requires organisations to take quite um, dramatic, courageous action to kind of work against those rules. Whereas if we were to shift some of the rules of those games, um, as you mentioned, the rules that underpin investments, the rules that underpin insurance, the rules that underpin um, statutory duties, fiduciary duties, they that does shift the rules of the game. It enables more things to happen. And I think that's what the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act has done. I'm, I'm interested in what's happening with the Better Business Act, which is sort of encouraging similar things of um, organisations to think beyond shareholders and things like that. Those kinds of um, acts, those kinds of shifts to rules, the potential that they have to, to enable greater innovation, greater creativity in this area. But I think it's fundamentally, it comes down to two words, ethical regulation. If we had ethical regulation um, uh, in, in place in all these big frameworks of our current negative uh, economy, then ethical regulation would lead to different outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the thing I would just like to, to say to end us with is it's just a huge thank you. I think um, it clearly has been not necessarily hard work for you. I, I mean, I will, you will probably say, oh, yes, definitely it was. And I'm certain that it was in many respects, but it also feels very much like you couldn't have been doing any other work. And this was just, <laughs> um, this is just what you're, you're here to do. Um, and I'm so, so thrilled that you have had those opportunities and you have been able to bring that passion, that vision, that tenacity to this work. Because to kind of my earlier question about, okay, well, what, what to do when you're in, you know, a situation, a context, an organization that you're trying to help reorient, to shift, to open up some more possibility, to think longer term, to think more systemically, to embrace well-being, is I think being able to point to examples, to point to the examples of organizations that are already a couple of steps ahead, I think is a massive help. Being able to point to the Welsh government and to point to this act. I think is a massive signal to others that, oh, it is, it's okay, it's possible. Others are doing this, we won't be alone. Um, I think it's a really important enabling factor. So I just want to say a massive, massive thank you for your role in this incredibly inspiring and powerful work. I think the ripple effects are, 
impossible for us to track, but I think they're vast. Um, yes, huge, huge gratitude to all that you've done and are doing. Well, thank, thank you, Hannah. I think the only thing I'd finish on saying, um, and this has been a fantastic conversation, is that these missions have to be personal too. So, um, and particularly in this sort of area, because, you know, people would always um, try and bring you down. They'll look at how many flights you've had. Well, I haven't had flight for a holiday since my 50th birthday. And that's a very time ago, for example. Um, uh, and, um, you know, how you live. So we started this conversation with me saying, you know, I live in a very sustainable house. We have a ground source heat pump. We have solar panels. You know, I can add we drive electrically. But we do one big green thing every year, you know, so um, and this year's is going to be about making sure that we capture water from everywhere that we can. So we don't waste any water at all, because I think water is going to be the big theme that is the uh, of, of, of the next couple of years. If we get a very dry summer, all those water companies that have said they won't introduce horse uh, pipe bands will have to. Um, and I think that, you know, we are growing in the UK is at risk unless we store more water. So I think it's it's finding your way um, in terms of living your own life. But all I can say as somebody who, you know, holidays locally <laughs> in the winter <laughs> because we grow in the summer uh, or goes off in a in, in, in a van, you know, for a, that actually our quality life has been improved. Mm -hmm. As we try to live more sustainably. Um, and that, I think, is a really, really important message. There is no hair shirt in, in my life. <laughs> yeah. um, but actually, I'm released for the obligations of having to get new stuff. Um, and now I celebrate how long stuff lasts. So yeah. you see behind me, there are old books, an old sofa. You know, I'm in a 20-year-old sweater or whatever. But actually what makes our home home and our children's home home mm. so it's this is not a negative we can live more positive lives in better ways for us and for future generations and I hope that people will take that away from this discussion oh how wonderful what an, an invitation to us all to step into the the joy the fun the the beauty of this path um as well as there might be challenges and, and things that are difficult about it, but there's there's also so much ease, I think, so much beauty and so much joy that, that comes with this path as well. So thank you so much for highlighting that. Thank, thank you, Jane. You. <laughs> thank you. What a truly wonderful and inspiring thing the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act is. And what an energetic and determined person Jane is. Since I had this discussion with Jane, there have been several occasions when I have found myself talking with people about the state of the world. And I found myself calling on this example as one of the things that bring me most hope, that inspires me most, that makes me feel confident that we can choose a more life-centered path and that a more thriving future is possible. There are so many things to take away from this conversation, but for those of you listening, 
working to support organisations to become more regenerative, I would love to leave you with just a few questions based on our conversation. Firstly, how are you and your organisation embedding long-term, integrated, collaborative ways of working and being into the everyday practices of you and everyone around you? How are you ensuring that you and your organization are being held accountable for your actions? How is your language allowing you to notice and learn from the right things? How are your processes and policies ensuring that brave and values-based leadership persists beyond the tenure of any individuals? And finally, how are you living this work in your own life and enjoying the many pleasures and riches that it brings? Sending much, much love until next time. Thank you for being here.